I have been studying the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and I'm amazed at it. There is a very clear outline to this book. The first 12 chapters are all about Peter and what he did and what happened under his ministry. And then, at the end of chapter 12, Peter basically disappears from the story. And from chapter 13 to 28, the rest of the book, it is all about Paul. It really is the story of these two men and what the Lord did through them, Peter and Paul. And Paul's story is told in a series of missionary trips that he took. There was the first missionary trip. This is really how we are introduced to him in terms of ministry, and that is in chapters 13 and 14. And then in chapter 16, he begins another missionary trip, and then there is another one. And near the end of his third missionary tour is where I want to plug into what is happening. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 20. Acts and chapter 20. Paul, this wonderful church planter, had been in Ephesus, and there was an uproar there. So it says in chapter 20, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, which is northern Greece. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, or in southern Greece specifically, in the great city of Corinth where he had planted a church, and he stayed there three months. Now I have the new international version. It says that he stayed there for three months. Now Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't tell us what Paul was doing during these three months, but we know, we know on the basis of Romans chapter 15, Paul was staying in the home, the villa, of a friend of his named Gaius. And he was planning his fourth missionary tour. And he was writing the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written right here in Acts 20 and verse 3. During this three-month period while Paul was staying in the home of his friend Gaius, he was writing the book of Romans and telling them at the end of the book, in chapter 15 of Romans, he said, I am about to take a financial gift to the impoverished churches of Judea, and then I'm going to come and visit you. I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, we've strategized about it, and from Rome, I want to go on to Spain. And Paul perhaps thought that he could fulfill the Great Commission in his own lifetime by going as far as he knew into the uttermost parts of the world to go to Spain. So he was very excited about this. He was a strategist. The Lord wants us to be strategists and to plan and to think through things and to pray through things and to look ahead and as best we can, we plan them. So Paul wrote to the Romans he said, here is what I believe, here is my theology of justification by grace through faith, but I want to come and tell you myself, face to face, what it is I'm preaching, and have you help me on my way to Spain. So after three months, he was ready to continue on his journey, and he was going 
towards Jerusalem. Now, the reason he was going to Jerusalem was because he wanted to take a financial offering to the churches there. And let me explain this just a little bit to you. In Paul's time, there there, there was a division in the church. There were two denominations, we would say in today's terms. There were the Jewish Christians, especially in Judea and around Jerusalem, who strongly believed that even after they received Christ as Savior, they ought to keep the Jewish traditions. So they would still keep the Jewish diet. They would still keep the Jewish festivals. They would still keep the Jewish hours of prayer and so forth. But then over here, there was the church outside of Judea. And many of them were Gentiles. And when they came to Christ, they didn't become Jews They just went straight into Christianity without going through Judaism. So they didn't keep any of these festivals or feasts or anything like that. And there was was a real division here. And so the Apostle Paul had strategized saying, if I take an offering from the Gentile churches and take it to the Jewish church, maybe it will help to heal this division this breach. And so that's what he was doing. In chapter 20, he goes on to Miletus. He calls the elders of the church, and look at what he says in verse 22. Acts 20 and verse 22. And now compelled by the Spirit, he feels compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's made his plans, but he's also not absolutely sure how things will work out because he doesn't know the future. He can't exactly predict what will happen. He says in verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Now, this is very interesting to me. I don't really know how to explain it. But in verse 22, he says, I am compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem And in verse 23, he says, the Holy Spirit is warning me that in Jerusalem, hardship is ahead of me. But he says in verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, for me, that has become sort of a life verse. I've never really had a life verse. Some people do. They just, they, they, the Lord gives them some Bible verse, and, and they have it inscribed, and it's on the wall of their house, and, and that is the verse more than any other verse that, that, they, that impacts their life. And I have never had a life verse, but in recent days, I've thought a lot about this one in the book of, in the Living Bible. Acts 20, 24 says, life is worthless to me unless I use it for finishing the work Jesus Christ has assigned to me, the work of testifying to the glory and the grace of the gospel. Life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work God has given me. Now, that's right from this text. And What a motto that is for every one of us. God has assigned work 
to us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We are God's workmanship, prepared in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus said, I must do the works of him who sent me. At the, at the end of his life, he said, I have done the work. I have finished the work. I brought glory to you by completing the work you gave me to do. So the Apostle Paul, that was his attitude. And so he went on to Jerusalem. Now that brings us to verse number, well, chapter 21. Uh, it says, after we, and when you see we in the book of Acts, that means that Luke, the writer, is there and he is an eyewitness. After we had torn ourselves away from these Ephesian elders in Miletus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. So now they're going to sail from Greece across the Mediterranean back to the Middle East. It is about a 400-mile voyage. It would take about a week and it says in verse 3, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. He mentions here that as we sail this 400 miles, about halfway, we saw over on the port side, Cyprus. That had been the site of Paul's first missionary work in Acts chapter 13. He had converts there. He had believers there. And as he sailed past and saw that island, he couldn't visit with any of them, but the memories must have come back to him. And they finally ended up in Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. Now, you'll notice as we read through this that everywhere Paul went, there was a group of Christians that welcomed him. And it's really a very wonderful thing that everywhere he went, there were little communities of Christians that knew about him and that welcomed him. And that's true for us as well. Wherever you go in the world, you will find little groups of Christians and you will instantly feel like you belong to them. It's really, I don't know how to describe it. I've been all over the world and I can go into a city and it seems like such a strange, forbidding, difficult, threatening city until I find those Christians there. And all of a sudden, I'm as at home as if I were in my own living room. And it's wonderful the way that Paul did this. And how would you like to be in Tyre and say, do you know who just landed? It's the Apostle Paul. He's going to stay a whole week here with us. Who will have him to eat? Who will have his companions into their house? Can we come? He'll teach us, I'll bet. And so he stayed there entire for a complete week. But look at what it says next in verse 4. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. You can just see them all kneeling down and praying around Paul and actually the same thing had happened at the end of the previous chapter with the Ephesian elders. They all on the beach, they gathered around and knelt and prayed. And as I read through this, I was convicted by that word knelt. I've gotten away from kneeling 
when I pray. I don't think we have to kneel all the time when we pray. But certainly that is a biblical posture. And I've sort of gotten away from it. And, and I want to uh, find some patterns here of going back to this posture of kneeling. Because that's what they did many times. Not always, but many times in the Bible. When I was in college back, it's been over 50 years ago. There was a pastor in my town, which was, I went to uh, Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina, named Edwin Young. And he's today at the First uh, Second Baptist Church of Houston. But at that time, he was at the First Baptist of Columbia. And I would call his office and say, can I see Dr. Young? And they would always put me on the schedule. And so any number of times I went and would ask him a lot of questions about being a pastor and about preaching and about church life and everything. He was so kind to me and gave me a lot of things I can still remember to this day, some of the things he told me. But every time when we were finished, he'd say, now let's have prayer. And he would kneel down by his desk and pull me down beside him and he would kneel and we would pray together. Well, he is 85 years old now. And I just saw him in Houston. He's the pastor of Second Baptist, which has like 85,000 people there. But I was in Houston, and I went by and visited with him. And when I got ready to leave, he said, now let's have prayer together. And the next thing I know, there we are on our knees. And that is a pattern that I'm sure he got by reading passages like this. So it says, they knelt to pray, and then after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home, and now Paul is making his way down the Middle Eastern coast from Tyre. Um, well, it says in verse 7, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus. It's helpful to look at all of this in a map if you study it on your own. Where we were greeted by the brothers and sisters, and we stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, now they are in Israel. And Caesarea was the great port city, the harbor city, which Herod the Great had built as the headquartering for the Roman occupying troops. And it says, we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, who we read about in Acts chapter 8, one of the seven, that is one of the seven deacons we read about in Acts chapter 6. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Philip is the only person in the book of Acts who is called an evangelist. Philip the evangelist. So he was out winning people to the Lord, and I suppose his four daughters who preached and prophesied, they must have discipled and taught many of these converts. So Paul stays there for a while with them. And it says in verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down. Agabus we have met earlier in the book of Acts, in chapter 11, he is the one who predicted the famine that would strike Judah and impoverish the Judean Christians and the people of Judah. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied it in his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So Paul is continuing to get this opposition from his friends to his continuing to Jerusalem because it was a very dangerous city for him. Verse 12, when we heard this, 
we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And verse 14, now this is in the NIV. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. So verse 15, after this we started on our way up to Jerusalem. It actually is going south or southeast here, but it's going up in elevation. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason where we were to stay. And he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Perhaps Paul had won him to Christ on that first missionary tour in Cyprus. And now he very conveniently owned a house halfway between Caesarea and Jerusalem, which was a two-day journey. And so I'm sure that a lot of Christians stayed at his house and Paul did on that evening. And then it says in verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. It's helpful to know that at this particular time, Jerusalem was in tremendous turmoil. It was tense. I've been to Jerusalem before when it was very tense during the Intifada. And it can be, but do you remember last year during the Black Lives Matter riots, how some of those cities were so tense, just a spark and the riots would come. And that's the way Jerusalem was. The Jewish people there were getting very frustrated with Roman rule and with Roman occupation. Within just 13 or 14 years, they would revolt and the Romans would wipe them off the face of the map. And so the tensions are building enormously. And not only that, but there was this division between the Jews and the Christians. And not only that, there was a division between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Paul was in the middle of all of this stress and tension. It was a very dangerous place for him to be. It would be like being in the middle of a bad part of town when a riot is ready to be triggered at any moment. And so it was a dangerous place for him. Now, why he went, he says he was compelled by the Spirit. It says that he wanted to take this offering, but nothing is said here about him delivering the offering. I'm sure he did. But by this point, things were so bad that it was beyond the ability of an offering to do much good. And so Paul found himself here it actually was awkward for everybody. Look at verse 18. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all of the elders were present. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem and sort of the patriarch or the bishop over the churches of Judea, and he was the Lord's half-brother. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. He had grown up with Jesus in Nazareth, and he had been converted at the resurrection, and he had become the head of this church in Jerusalem, and he was pretty strict. James was pretty strict. He understood theologically that at least Gentiles didn't have to keep Jewish customs when they came to Christ, but he was determined that he was going to keep them, 
and he would prefer that everybody keep them. Theologically, he understood, but he was, a, he was Hebrew through and through. And so it says, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all of the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through him. Now, this word through is a very important preposition. It makes a big, big difference whenever we preach or teach or sing or witness or evangelize or work with children or do good deeds when we realize that we're not doing something for the Lord Jesus. He is doing it through us by his Holy Spirit. This, this whole conception of this has, over the years, changed my whole perspective about ministry. It's not my personality, my power, my ability in any way. It is what the Holy Spirit does through us. I read last week about a, a woodpecker that flew up on a maple tree. And the moment that his beak hit the wood, the tree was also struck by lightning that split it in two. And that woodpecker flew up and looked down and said, I didn't know I was so strong. And it's very much like that. When we serve the Lord, we are tapping away at what he calls us to do. But it's the Holy Spirit that does the real work. We often can't see it. It's not always that dramatic. It may be later that the tree splits, but it's the Holy Spirit doing his work through us. So Paul told them all that the Lord had done among the Gentiles through him. And I love the way that it's put here. It says in verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. And then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. So good for you with those Gentiles. But God has been working here in this area and thousands of Jews have come and these Jewish Christians are zealous about keeping the law. Now, they went on to tell Paul that the rumor is that when you're out in the empire and you win a Jewish person to Christ, you tell them that they no longer have to keep the law. Now, Paul didn't do that. He perhaps theologically could have done it, but he would tell the Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to keep Jewish dietary regulations. You don't have to circumcise your children. You just don't worry about Judaism. You just serve Christ. But when the Jews came to the Lord, what should they do? Should they keep the law? Should they not? Should they abandon Moses? Well, that was a very sensitive issue. And so the people in Judea thought Paul was teaching the Jews to abandon Moses. So look at this again. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So Paul has put the whole church there, instead of solving problems, it's as though he had created them. 
the rumors about him were going to be hard to dispel. So they advised him. They said, go to the temple, be part of these men that are taking a Jewish vow, do it with them, let everyone see that you are observing the law and maybe that will diffuse things. And so Paul agreed to that. And it says in verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him saying, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And it created a riot. Paul was seized. He was about to be torn limb from limb when the Romans came and rescued him and put him in prison. And that was the last day of freedom that Paul experienced for the next five years. He was suddenly a prisoner, first in Jerusalem, and then in Caesarea, and then on board a disastrous voyage, and then in Rome for two years, and that's where the book of Acts ends. So what happened to all of Paul's dreams and strategies and everything about going to Rome? What he wrote in Romans chapter 15, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and pray that I'll be delivered from those people there and get away and I'm going to come here and then I'm going to go to Spain and we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. None of that worked out. I mean, it just fell to pieces in Jerusalem. Commentators are divided about whether Paul should really have gone to Jerusalem. So that is the story here that I want to tell you. Now, the verse that I want to give you is in verse 14, Acts 21, 14. It says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. We tried to keep him from going. We did everything we could except to physically hinder him. We wept, we persuaded, we pleaded. We were anxious, we were concerned. But when we saw that Paul was going to do what Paul wanted to do, we gave up. We ceased fighting him, and we said, the Lord's will be done. Now, there is an application here to us. This verse to me has become very meaningful. There are times in our lives when we need to give up and say, the Lord's will be done. There is a problem maybe that we cannot solve. There is someone that we cannot control. There is something that we want to accomplish and the doors keep closing. We have an ambition, we have an anxiety, we have a dream, we have a dilemma, and nothing is working, nothing happens, everything is going in the opposite direction, and sometimes we need to say, Lord, I'm going to give up and say, your will be done. Is there anything like that in your life? It could be that there is some difficult thing you're facing and you've tried every way to resolve that and it just gets worse and you have to say Lord I give up may your will be done there is a great liberating power in that it doesn't mean you're no longer concerned it doesn't mean that you're no longer burdened it doesn't mean that you no longer pray about it it simply means that you've recognized that you cannot do the impossible. 
You cannot do what only God can do. You cannot bear what only God can bear. You cannot solve things that only God can solve. You can't accomplish things that God doesn't want you to have. And so at some point you say, Lord, here is this thing. I give up. And I say, your will be done. Now that's a wonderful place to come to. That is godly yielding, godly surrender. I think of Jacob, who, you know, in the Old Testament, the brothers went down to Egypt to get some um, grain because of the famine. And Joseph kept one of the brothers, sent the rest back, but he said, I will not do anything more for you until you bring your younger brother Benjamin down here. And Jacob, the old patriarch, he loved Benjamin more than anything. He said, I cannot send Benjamin to Egypt. But finally, he had to. And he just said, take him. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. In other words, I'm giving up. The Lord's will be done. Queen Esther said, if I perish, I perish. The Lord's will be done. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And Jesus, in that garden of Gethsemane, said, Lord, not my will. Now, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. I can't get over the power of this phrase in verse 14. When we saw that we couldn't resolve this, we couldn't stop him, we couldn't do anything more, we'd reached the end of our resources. We gave up. We just gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Now, if there is something in your life, you just need to say that to the Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm just going to give up on this and say your will be done. That's when the Lord can really begin to work. And look at what happened after this. So Paul then was arrested in Jerusalem. He was able to speak to the crowd of rioters. He was able to speak to the Sanhedrin. He was moved to Caesarea. He was there in, I think, a relatively good prison area in the palace for two years where we don't know that he did much of anything. I think he was rehabbing because he had been through so very much. We don't know of any letters that he wrote. He would evangelize the governors and their families and the soldiers. That sort of prison, that palace became his place of ministry. I think that Luke wrote the gospel during that two-year period, and Paul probably had a part to play in that. But then they went to Rome on board a ship which was saved from a storm 276 souls were saved because Paul was on that ship. He made it to Rome. He was in prison there for two years under house arrest. His friends could come and go and take care of him, and they would come in, and he would teach them. And it was there that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He said to the Philippians, all of this has worked out rather for the furtherance of the gospel, all of these imperial soldiers have been evangelized. I've been able to reach into the household of Caesar 
and evangelize them, and all of the empire people have been motivated for greater bravery by my example. And then we know from Christian history he was released and he was able to go on that fourth missionary tour and he still had travels and evangelizing inside of him, before him, until he was finally arrested and executed about A.D. 66. So look at all that God did through the collapse of Paul's plans after Luke and the others gave up and said, the will of the Lord be done. So when we turn something over to the Lord, we yield it, we surrender it to him, whatever it is in your life, that may be so perplexing. And you just say, the Lord's will be done. You still pray. You still concern yourself with it. But, but you've put it in the Lord's hands. And there is a peace and a power that comes with that. That allows the Lord to really work in your lives. Let me end with this stanza from an old hymn. Praise ye the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. One of the stanzas says, Praise ye the Lord, who over all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yes, so gently sustaineth. Have you not seen how your desires e'er have been granted and what he ordaineth? There is nothing better than saying, Lord, your will be done on earth and in these areas around me and in my life as it is done in heaven.